Welcome to all of you for joining us in church today, and we are excited. I want to just bring you up to speed on where we've been. If you have not been, if you're watching this later than when we recorded it, it is March of 2020, and I want to bring you up to speed uh, on what has been going on in this current crisis that we are in. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis pandemic, and it's not the first worldwide crisis, and it certainly won't be the last. But today I want to tell you why you need this sermon. You need to know that we will get through this. Will it be hard? Yes. Will there be a quick fix? Likely not. And on a very personal level, I know that there's so many of you out there who might actually be very afraid. On the inside, you're fearful. Uh, that that f- fear starts to burst up on the inside of you and and maybe you're in fear of getting the virus or some of you are in fear of losing your business or having to let go of employees that you love and care for them so much and some of you are just afraid that you might be losing your job you're frustrated at reduced hours you're frustrated that your educational plans have been a little bit rearranged or you're worried actually about actually losing your job or that someone near you gets sick And you get worried about these things and that fear begins to perk up on the inside of you. Now, we have to say, do I have all the answers? No, I do not. But I know that God is always with us and we will get through this. That's what I know. Whenever a crisis hits, there's always a combination of loss, but it also brings along with it new opportunity. See, managers oftentimes, what they'll try to do is they'll try to manage it. If you're a manager of your family or a manager in your business, uh, a crisis comes along like this and you want to manage it. You want to like try to control it and, and try to adapt so that it's at least risk as possible for your family or for your organization. But leaders run a little bit differently. Leaders are the people who see the crisis. They see the possible dangers, what needs to be done. But they also see the possibility for new opportunity. In fact, it's been interesting that several businesses have begun to consider manufacturing respiratory products as a new line of business for them because of a shortage they didn't know existed. But they're saying, hey, in this downtime, we can remount our manufacturing process and we can open up a new line of business that wasn't available to us previously. Leaders see new opportunity. See, what happens is when you're in a crisis like this, it makes you and I see clearer. In fact, oftentimes, moments like these make you and I institute changes that are just long overdue. Like we should have done this a long time ago, but God has just opened up your eyes to be able to see that maybe that change actually needs to happen right now because times like these make us see clearer. And we're in a series called 2020 Vision, that in 2020, we want to be able to see as God sees so we can do as God says. That's not true, though, of everybody. There are some people who just want to hang on. There are some people who get absolutely overwhelmed by their fears. Listen, if you're the type of person just by your nature that you're short-sighted, then what you're going to do, you're simply going to try to hang on to your job. You're going to try to hang on to your life, and you're going to try to hang on to your importance, and you're going to react out of fear. But leaders oftentimes look for opportunity in the midst of hard times to adapt and change in a quickly changing world, and things have been changing pretty quickly. It was true in Jesus' day. 
In Jesus' day, the disciples had been three years with Jesus at the point at which we are in Luke chapter 22. For three years, they have been with Jesus. They've been watching Jesus do miracles and rising in popularity, healing people, that he is the risen Messiah. He is the one who's come to the people right now, and they are alongside with him, and they're seeing all that he's doing, amazing things. They're literally, if you picture it this way, they are helping the God of the universe who has become flesh in human form, and they're alongside helping him. It's an amazing time to be a disciple. And Jesus is now where we are in this point in Luke 22. He's just been having the Last Supper, the famous Last Supper. At the end of that Passover meal, he now institutes the first communion service. And he tells the disciples at this time that one of them is going to betray him. And we'll pick up at Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority uh, over them call themselves benefactors. But you are to not be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? It's the one at the table. But I am among you as one who serves, Jesus says. Verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What happens when you receive word that your organization or your life or the circumstances around you are gonna be in a season of upheaval. Well, you react, and so do I. It's what we oftentimes do, it's to be human. Write this down, when threatened, your natural instinct is to defend yourself and argue your importance. And that's what the disciples are doing here. They hear that somebody's gonna betray Jesus, so what do they do? They start to argue about which of them is the greatest. They're not worried about who the, the betrayer is, they're worried about who's the greatest. Picture this. It's like this, if you were driving a bus and you get on the speaker system and you tell the people on the bus that one of the passengers is gonna attack you while you're driving the bus and all of a sudden, all the passengers on the bus start to argue about who gets the best seat. It makes no sense, but that's exactly what the disciples were doing. Why? Because in times of crisis, it's easy to argue your importance above everybody else. Jesus has just said that everything that you disciples have worked on so hard for so long is going to be disruptive. And maybe the disciples' argument isn't the best solution, but that's how they react because it's normal in times of pressure to react in strange ways. But Jesus said there's something else at work. There's something going on that's further than that. He says, Satan wants to sift them like we look with me at verse 31 Simon Simon Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat but I have prayed for you Simon that your faith may not fail and when you have turned back strengthen your brothers Jesus uses this word sifting you're going to be sifted Satan wants to sift all of you disciples as wheat but he singled out Simon Peter he singled him out as he's addressing him at this time. And let me be clear about something. When you go through a season of sifting, or I go through a season of sifting, it's not the most pleasant. 
In fact, let me just be very down to earth and honest with you. I hate being sifted. I hate it. It's inconvenient. It requires more of me. And the mental and emotional battles are very, very hard for me. Now that you see how unspiritual I am as your pastor and you say, but pastor, aren't we supposed to be joyful, pray continually and to give thanks in all circumstances? And I say, yes, yes we are. But when those circumstances go on and on and on and the season of sifting seems longer all the time, it kind of wears me down and I imagine I'm not the only one that it probably does for you as well. There's a quote, and I wish I knew the author, but it said this, it's not always the depth of the pain, it's the length of it. Isn't that true? It's not the one-time moment, but that ongoing length of time, and a season of sifting can be very painful or be very drawn out. I mean, wouldn't it be great, because we kind of self want to do self-preservation. And wouldn't it be great if we could just have all the benefit without any of the sacrifice I mean, I'm still waiting for them to figure out how we can lose weight by eating everything that we want to. I'm still trying to figure out, like, how can we all get financial security by winning the lottery? Uh, We want to play guitar like Matt Lingo, but without any of the practice. You want to get straight A's without ever having to study, or or maybe for you, you want to get tenure in your first year as a teacher. Maybe for you, you never want to have to put on sunscreen because you just want this ability to just not burn in the sunshine. Or for some of you, you want to master Jedi mind tricks so that you can get other people to do what they don't want to do. These droids are not who you're looking for. Olympians who work so hard for years of their life to finally make it to the Olympics, when they get there and they win a medal, they inevitably say that the satisfaction of what they accomplished was worth the pain of sacrifice. I mean, it's almost like winning the reward makes the the pain of the sacrifice, it's almost like the winning the reward washes the pain away. And here's what I want you to know in a season of sifting. The story is not over. It's not finished. But there will be, listen to me, sifting before there's lifting. That's how it works. In your life, Your story is not finished. However, sifting comes before lifting. Jesus said this in Luke 22, 31. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Well, Simon Peter was first called by Jesus when he was fishing along the shores of the Sea of Galilee as a, as a you know, career fisherman, that's what he did. And he was down there and Jesus came and called these guys in the boat and said, have you caught any fish? And they said, no. And he said, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they said, well, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything, but okay, because you say so, we'll do it. They throw their net over there. They catch all these fish. It's a miraculous catch of fish. And they bring the boats in and they leave everything because Jesus did this miracle and they follow him. And that started the next three years of his life where he was really side by side with Jesus for the next three plus years. But right after this statement, when Jesus now says to Simon Peter, that Satan wants to sift you, it was on that very night that Peter denies even knowing Christ three times. Even though he swore, Lord, I'll go with you to the death, 
That very night, he denied Christ three times. And what does a guy do who denies God become flesh? What does a guy do who denies the Messiah? What does a guy do? Well, a guy who does that goes back to his old job. He goes back to fishing. And so that's what Simon Peter did. Though Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, rose to new life, appeared to the disciples, he kind of was like, well, I'm glad you're back and I'm glad you appeared to all of us, but I probably don't have a place in your kingdom because in this season of sifting, I probably have failed. So he goes back fishing. And then one morning when he's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, nearby in his boat, and they've been fishing all night, somebody on the shore says, hey, have you caught any fish? And he says, no. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught any. The person on the shore, who happens to be Jesus, says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. They throw their nets out on the other side of the boat. They have a miraculous catch of fish. They drag them into shore. They jump off the boat. They start a fire. They have a little breakfast together. And Jesus and Peter take a walk right after breakfast. And at that time, Peter thinks he's got no place in the kingdom of God. There's no throne. There's no judging the tribes of Israel. There's no importance for him. He's the one who denied Christ. The others just ran away, but he, he denied Christ. And Jesus lets him know that the story is not finished. That sometimes in your life, there's sifting before there's lifting. And Jesus tells him to begin to feed his sheep. He tells him to get back in the game. He tells him, I still have a place for you, even though your faith has been somewhat shaken. And even though you've gone through a season of sifting. Well, right after that, Pentecost happens. Jesus has risen. He has ascended now into heaven. The disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Peter, of all the disciples, goes out and preaches at Pentecost. And that day that he preaches, right there in Jerusalem, 3,000 people get saved. What happened? There's sifting before there's lifting. The story is not over Let me ask you in a time like this, what if God is calling you to lead your family through a time like this? Instead of just reacting, what if God is calling you to lead, to step out in faith, to not have all the answers or not give pat answers, but to lead with a confidence in the Lord while you're making wise decisions? I mean, it's amazing how sometimes in in seasons like this, we get opportunities to do new things. The youth group met this week And they had 38 students and 17 staff, and they were all doing online video conferencing. And then they were able to break out into their circle groups online with their leaders without ever having to leave their homes. They still had community. They still saw their friends. They still got to interact, and they still got to break into the word of God and be encouraged by God's word in their lives. It's a new opportunity Our circle groups are doing the same, whether it's men's or women's or adult circle groups are doing the same. Meetings are changing. And let me tell you, I think the church is getting activated. It's forcing us into changes that we've needed for some time. But sifting is hard. And sometimes sifting is long. And it's certainly frustrating. But let me tell you, you can't progress in your life or in your church or in your business without it. Hard times are what make you and I grow. So the question is, how will you emerge from such a season? 
When we're sifted, our faith will hold us up or a lack of faith will actually pull us down. But there's good news here. And Jesus tells Peter what that good news is. He says, he's going to be our praying advocate. We so often think of you praying to Jesus and Jesus is saying during this time, I'm gonna be praying for you. I'm gonna be praying for you that your faith won't fail. I'm gonna pray for you that you'll strengthen other people. I'm gonna pray for you. He's our advocate. We will be tested. And in this life, we will face disappointments and we will face setbacks and we will face trials. But our choice is either to grow through them or potentially have a crisis of faith. I believe that people who have natural doubts, I believe that people who have at times a crisis of faith, I believe sometimes it's a sifting which brings them to a place where they maybe have some false beliefs and God can begin to grow authentic faith. And so often we get scared of our doubts. I don't think we should. I think we should wade through them because God begins to build the soil in you for a lasting faith. Jesus, who is our prayer support, he fights so that you and I grow in seasons like these. I'm gonna ask you a tough question. What if everything that's happening to you right now is exactly what's needed? Yes, everything. What if everything that's happening to you right now is exactly what is needed? See, God sifts his church. He sifts out old ways of doing things. He sifts out unhealthy beliefs. He sifts out unhealthy dependencies. Why? Because he wants to make sure that his churches are more than just buildings, that his church is a living stones, that they are people who are being brought together, a living, organic movement that he grows up and he matures because he loves his church. Write this down. We learn some things in this passage of how to walk through a season of sifting. And one of the first is to reject the comparison trap. See, when I'm in a season of sifting, I'm tempted to compare my life to others. And if I do that, comparing my life to other people steals my joy. It takes it away, right? You're sitting there, you're going, you know, the disciples are saying, well, who's gonna sit next to Christ? Who's gonna be the greatest? And they start comparing themselves to everybody else. They literally are working around the room and looking at the other people and the testosterone is going up. They say, Jesus is saying, this is gonna be a tough time. And they all start getting to understand, they're trying to figure out who's the greatest. What are they doing? They're doing the comparison trap. But you and I do the same thing. Why does that person get to be strong when I'm weak? Why do I have to fight the cancer and that person doesn't? Why do I have to have my hours restricted but someone else doesn't? Why did I get laid off but not everybody else? Why don't I have a relationship like I see on Instagram or I call it insta-envy? You begin to look around and play the comparison game and it will steal your joy. Listen, it is God's prerogative to change something that you and I have loved with all our heart. For some, it might be the way church is done. For others, it might be a relationship. For others, it might be the kind of life that you had set up and the little nest egg you were hoping to have forever. And it is God's prerogative because he's sovereign to change things that you and I have attached to maybe sometimes in unhealthy ways. And God's gonna come along and say, I'm gonna allow a season of sifting 
but I'm gonna, I won't cause it, but I'm gonna allow it so that you and I grow so our dependence comes back on him. And God is sovereign. These seasons are no surprise to him. The scriptures tell us that in all things, and that means all kind of things, that means the good things, the bad things, and let me tell you the downright ugly things, that in all things, God still works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me tell you, Jesus isn't asking you to go through bad things or hard times as if he himself wasn't willing. He went through the worst. And he loves us very, very much. He knows what it is to sacrifice. Write this down. Sifting brings us back to our first love. Our first love, that we're to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And it's amazing what happens when the urgent gets stripped away. How many things have you and I done over the last few months that were so urgent that suddenly are prohibited now? They're just stripped away. What does it do? It provides room for you and I to come back to our first love, that it's time for us to grab our Bible and open it up, begin to walk with God in the scriptures, allow the scriptures to speak to us right where we're at in the season, right where we're at right now, that it's a time for us to begin to come back to God. Jesus, in a season of sifting, prays for you and he prays for me. Two things, two things he prays. You might want to write this down. First, that your faith would not fail. Jesus doesn't want your faith to fail. And second, that you strengthen others. See, the purpose of going through a hard time is not just to say, oh, I chalked that up, I went through a hard time, but that you can give someone else the comfort you yourself have received from God. You strengthen the brothers and the sisters around you. So God draws us back to himself. He removes the deterrents that hinder our first love. And this makes us available to actually love and strengthen other people better. Write this down. Take your stand against the sifter. Who's the sifter? It's Satan. Who wanted to sift them as wheat? Satan wanted to sift them like wheat. Well, God's church on earth must stand up against the Satan-like pride of wanting things our way, always wanting things to be secure and comfortable and trouble-free and wanting strength without any sacrifice. Those kind of mindsets are things that work actually against the kingdom of God. And we need to stand against it. But you also need to know that there's a real spiritual battle. There's a real spiritual enemy. So Satan, we are against you. The Lord rebuke you as the pride behind so much division and disagreements in our world. We are for the Holy Spirit of God, which causes his church to pull in the same direction and do amazing things bigger than we could imagine. We take our stand by the authority of Jesus Christ. That it's his authority. We stand against the sifter. Well, Jesus now goes from this last supper out to the garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's going to face ultimate and imminent suffering on our behalf. So what does he do? He cries out to the father. Verse 39 says this, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus, what does he do? He, sur- he submits himself to the process. What does that process look like? It's submitting ourselves to the sovereignty of God. It means this, surrender my will and embrace God's will. That we have to lay down what we wanted and what we pictured life to look like. We lay that down and we embrace God's will. This quote is this, it says, hand over your life with reckless abandon to almighty God. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who actually said that. He said, hand over your life with reckless abandon to almighty God. Just give it to him. So often we're trying to cling to our life and we can't keep it. And God's saying, hand it over. Hand over your life with reckless abandon to almighty God. Jesus hands over his life to the Father. Why? He had a unified love being God with God the Father, but he also was doing it as an act of sacrificial love for us, that he would become our sacrifice. And in the same way, we intentionally surrender our will out of our love for God and for the good that it will accomplish and what God wants to do in and through us. So pray, Jesus says, that you won't fall into temptation. Well, what's the temptation? The temptation is to quit faith in a time of sifting. What does he say? Rather, you should get up and pray. And listen to me for just a moment. You have talked to everybody about this pandemic. You've given them new information. You've out loud talked about your understanding of the process and the times. You've talked about it, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. You've talked about everybody about this pandemic. My question is, have you talked to God about it? Jesus, when the disciples were sleeping, saying, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What's Jesus insinuating? He's insinuating that sometimes silence is deadly. That when you and I don't talk to God, it can be deadly for us. So what do we need to do? Get up, pray. Get yourself alone with God. Get your Bible with you and talk to him about what you're going through right now in whatever season of sifting you're in at this moment. To hold it all inside, to talk to everybody else doesn't mean that you're talking actually to God. So talk to him. And last, don't call it quits for the wrong reasons. The story is not finished. There will be sifting before there's lifting. Jesus said this in Luke 22, verse 37. He's he's talking about himself as the Messiah, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be uh, going through some things. He said this to his disciples. He said, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me, Jesus says. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. What's he telling them? 
that the Old Testament scriptures are gonna be fulfilled in him, that this particular Old Testament scripture is that he's going to be numbered with the transgressors, that he's going to be crucified, hung on a cross between two thieves, two transgressors, and he's going to hang there and he's gonna take the punishment of God for our sin upon himself between two people who deserve it. Jesus, who was without sin, who had never sinned, was going to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. What happened in Jesus' humiliation and sacrifice on the cross was the fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures. But the beautiful thing is it wasn't just a time of crisis. It brought with it opportunities, fresh opportunities. It brought with it the opportunity to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ through God's grace. And it brought the launch of the early church to all nations, not just to be the people of God as Jewish people only, that was new opportunities came out of a time of crisis. So hang in there. The story is not finished. There will be sifting before there's lifting. And Jesus was sifted in the garden and his faith gave him strength to be lifted up on the cross, which was still part of his suffering. However, God's power raised him from the dead to new life, exalted in heaven forever. I want to tell you right now, faith in Christ is the only way that you are saved. And Jesus, the advocate, is praying that in a season of sifting like right now, you would humble yourself and give your life to him. If that's you right now, Will you just bow your head, close your eyes, just wherever you are, just thinking about your own life, pray a prayer like this to say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on that cross for my sin and that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you're God. And I ask you to wash me as white as snow. Forgive me, God, of all my sin. Make me a new creation on the inside because today, Jesus, I give you me. And if you prayed that prayer, would you go ahead and contact us and let us know that you made that decision for the very first time because we'd like to get in contact with you about how to grow in the decision that you would make for Jesus. But we're so grateful for what God's gonna do in and through you. Though in a time of sifting, he's the one who lifts you out of that place where you find yourself. Maybe just in your living room or in your house or on your podcast, will you just give it up for what God's doing in and through and among his church all over the world? We love you.